0: Alright, so Job, if you want to turn to Job and you can go to, it's going to take us a little while to get there, but Job chapter 4 and verse 1, and just just stay there for a second. I made a very, very clear point last week that some of the key linchpins or the key marks in this book are when Job says at the beginning of the book, remember I said like bookends, what I feared was going to happen to me actually happened, right? That's the beginning of the book. And at the end of the book, after all of the book is said and done, and God deals with Job and his friends, Job finally says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes see you. And that's the whole intent of the book. But in around the midpoint of the book, a little after the midpoint of the book in chapter 19, this is what we went over last week, some very key words. It's only a couple of verses, but I really pressed the point home. And for those of you who weren't here, my wife says I yell too much. But Rick knows it's only passion. And I haven't hurt anybody, except if you're sitting in the front row, then I might spit a little bit. Like I said, I'm going to get one of those shields. huh? You, you've been in my classes. You know, she, that's why she's, she's she knows. See, Christy knows. have a big desk. Mm. Anyway, so, but he says, and this is the key, and around this point of the book, just past the midpoint, he says, I know, I know that my Redeemer, with a capital R, lives. And I asked you who were here last week to think of the full import of what he is saying there. I mean, it's something that, you know, we, we thankfully can take for granted, if, if you will. You know what I'm saying? Not to devalue it, but, but we are assured of what we know. We know Jesus Christ. We know who he is. But Job didn't have the benefit of a church. He didn't have the benefit of seminary. He didn't even have the, really the benefit of the patriarchs, because I, I'm going to review the timeline again of when he lived. So not only did he say, my Redeemer lives, and and he says, but I shall see him in my flesh with my own eyes. He also believed in the physical resurrection and the new bodies that we will have. He knew that. The point is, where did he get this information from? Obviously, the Holy Spirit. Remember in, in the New Testament, when Jesus says, and I've mentioned this a couple of times, and you know this well, when Jesus asks his disciples, the Holy Spirit has to reveal that, and we know that. But to understand all of that in Job's day, who did he get this information from? And, and that also harkens back to what we discussed in this class before. We're gonna talk a little bit about it now. When Adam and Eve were first created, there was a direct bond, not only a direct bond, but God was present with them all the time. Not that he's not present with us, but there was a, a real, almost like, well, it wasn't always, it was a physical presence. God was with them. He taught them directly, we know that. But then something separated them and is called sin. So even though God still has a relationship with human beings, as we also proved with the book of Job, that God has a relationship still with Satan, right? He does. But with human beings, it's, it's, it's at least one layer of abstraction between God and humans. And that's why we're going to review here where humans are now no longer directly considered or, or considered direct creations of God. We are, but we're all really procreated from Adam in this consideration, in this layer of separation. But how does all that play out with Job? This is what I want to discuss with you right now. So I'm just going to read you here. First, God taught Adam and Eve directly, and then he taught some of their children from the, from, actually from Cain, right? But from the godly line of Seth forward. So the seventh from Adam is Enoch. There were a couple of Enochs, but the seventh from Adam, this one, from the line of Seth is Enoch. And this is what we're, we're going to talk about here in a moment. So I'm just going to read you. You don't have to turn there. Genesis uh, chapter 4, 25 to chapter 5 and 24. Adam lay with his wife again, so we know that it's after Cain. Cain and Abel, and you know, Cain slew Abel, and, and you know that story. So this is like the second part of this birthing generation of human beings from Adam and Eve. And she, had, she gave birth to a son named Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and his name was Enosh. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. What this really says here, they began to call on the name of the Lord. Well, what happened to Adam and Eve? They, they were already had a relationship with God. But remember, because of that separation, now men had a sort of call on the name of the Lord. Does that make sense? It, what, it, it had to be led to find God, and he was doing this back then. Remember what it says in in, in the Old Testament when he talks about the New Covenant? Remember, the New Covenant is really for the Jews, right? But the New Covenant, he says, no longer will one man have to say to another, come and see the Lord or come and know the Lord, right? He says, I will put put my law, put myself into them. I will live in them. That's what he says. That's sort of the remedy for this layer of abstraction is the New Covenant under Jesus Christ. Because now you and I, we don't no longer have to be told who the Lord is when he when He gives us the Holy Spirit, right? So there are people who hear of the Lord and then there are people who have the Lord and having the Lord was enabled for Adam and Eve until they sinned and it doesn't get re-enabled again until the new covenant when Jesus Christ comes and dies and pays the, the penalty of sin. Does that make sense? So Job is, and, and the other patriarchs have to be called and we know that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Moses and all of them were called in certain ways and we know that in the Old Testament days That the Holy Spirit didn't live inside most of the people by far, only select individuals for certain acts of service, right? But in the New Testament, after Jesus Christ, the Lord lives in everybody who comes. So we are the temple of God. Anyway, so that's that's the uh, the quick explanation of all of this. But so this is where we are here. In verse five of uh, Genesis, chapter one, uh, verse one, it says, "This is this is the written about account of Adam's line." When God created man, he made him in His like, in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And, and when they were created, he called them man. And we're going to skip to verse 15 in this. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, this is a genealogy now, he became the father of Jared. And after he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. But we're focusing on Jared. Although Mahalalel lived 895 years, he died. Everybody has to die. When Jared lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. And this is the Enoch that we're talking about. And after he'd become the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters, although Jared lived 962 years and then he died. Now, I want to give you a timeline. Just let me finish up this last verse here. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of good old Methuselah. Emphasis on the old, right? And after he became the father of Methuselah, and this is the qualification, it doesn't just say Enoch lived this many years and died, like it said for the forefathers. It says, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. And then it further says about Enoch, altogether Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God and then was no more because God took him away. So he had a special type of his ending of his time here, sort of like... A rapture sort of like it right and we know about um, uh, Elijah and his rapture so we already see underpinnings here of the way things are going to work in our time we're gonna see more of that in the book of Job but I'm setting the stage because the more I look at this the more I I think it's it's really key to understand the time frame within which he lived and how he understood so much And then we're going to see, as we get into today and finish up next week, with the 60 questions that God asks Job. These are very key to understanding a lot that the book of Job gives us. So it's not just about the suffering, although that's a key, and we discussed that quite a bit in this class. It's also now about the relationship and what God is going to do. Yeah. So in the beginning, God created... Genesis 1. <laughs> Sorry, we had a little glitch here in the audio. Uh, yeah, Genesis 1. So we, we missed some stuff, but thankfully we didn't get into the real meat yet. All right. So we're going to go into, we'll look at the book of, of Enoch. And if you've never listened or you never looked at the book of Enoch, remember, when was Enoch born? 3,382 B.C. Would you say that was a, way before a lot of the history as we know it had happened? Yes. Listen to what this man knows. I want you to listen to what this man knows. Okay? So I'm just going to read you some of it. And, and I'm dovetailing this in because I personally fully believe. Because I know that the book of Enoch is mentioned in the book of Job. Right? So the founding fathers, if you will, of, our, of, of the way, the direct disciples, believed they had a copy of the book of Enoch, obviously before it was corrupted. But they believed it. They knew it. So I just want you to understand that just because you haven't been taught this doesn't mean it's not true. Just because it's not just part of, you know, between the covers of Scripture doesn't mean it's not true. Um, What I wanted to do before I do that, I almost forgot. This book is an excellent book. It's called The Annals of the World by James Bishop Usher. And James Bishop Usher was a bishop, and uh, this is the the, uh, 2003 translation of the original book, which was written in 1658. It is an excellent book. It starts out with everything that happened in the world. Everything. I mean, you know, even stuff that it just rounds out history with all of, the, all of the governments, all of the major things that happened. And the man was Christian, so he's, he documents Scripture in the history, but he also documents a lot of secular writings because that's what documents extra-biblical history, which happened. Okay, so it starts out, and it gives all the dates from the creation of Adam It's September 21st, 4004 B.C., and it goes all the way through. This is volume one. I think there's a volume two somewhere. Uh, I don't have it. Uh, let's see. It goes all the way forward until, oh, let me see. I think it was around the time of Christ here. Let me see. Wow, there's a lot to so this it's book. Something that's still in print. Oh, yeah. I just I just bought it a few years ago. Yeah. It's got a lot of footnotes in it. Uh, 60 A.D. 70 A.D. So it's after the time of Christ. That's that's what this document. is. It's amazing. It's amazing. So I'm going to read you. In 3769 B.C., when Seth was 105 years old, he had his son Enos. The fact that the worship of God was even then wretchedly corrupted by the descendants of Cain indicates the lamentable condition of all mankind. We agree. Hence, it came about that even then the distinction was made that those who continued... Now, listen to this. That those who continued in the true worship of God were known by the name of children of God, whereas those who forsook him were termed the children of men. Okay? Now, I want to show you because I showed you in the book of, of, of um, Job at the beginning when Satan comes and it says the sons of God presented themselves to God. That's not human beings, that's angels. Okay. We talked about in Genesis where the sons of God did some awful things with human women. and ba- Well, it really started with the Catholic Church back in, I think, around the 1400s, 1500s when it was just too much to believe that angels they would starting to really water down the basic truths of how God creates things and how they can do things. We're going to talk about that here in Job. So they, they torqued it. So a lot of Christians believe that the sons of God that went into the daughters of men, because they saw that they were fair, and then giants, they don't want to believe the truth. And I'll tell you, it's the truth. Okay, this is my opinion, but it's the truth. You can do the research and find out. The church believed this. The fathers believed this. But they said it's back from those uh, 1500s or something like that. It it was from the line of Seth, the godly line of Seth. That's probably what a lot of you have heard. If you've been in this class, you've heard me show you and show you very well that it's not the case. The Book of Enoch also talks about that. The very beginnings of this uh, of 200 angels who came down to Mount Hermon and decided among themselves that they were going to do this extra really really bad thing with women. And again, this book was was referenced by those early church fathers. So There's a lot to this. Anyway, so that's what it says here. Now, let's go forward now. So that's 3769 B.C., all right? And I want to show you now Job. There's a whole long thing here about Job in 1635 B.C., and that's why from this document and others surrounding it, it is thought that Job was born in 1635. And it says here, I'm just going to read you part of the end of this and the source of it. The book of Genesis ends with the death of Joseph and contains the history of the first 2,369 years of the world. This book was written by Moses. Well, we know that. This is the opinion of the Talmudists and is so greatly believed by all the Hebrews. And it references the Talmud here. Job likely lived toward the end of the period of history that was recorded in Genesis. The following account of Job was given by the Severus Sulpicius, And it's, it's a document and it just, it just says, says more about it. At this time, Job lived a man embracing the law of nature and the knowledge of the true God and very righteous and rich in goods. He was renowned for the fact that neither the enjoyment of those riches corrupted him nor the loss of them depraved him in any way. When he was plundered of all his goods by Satan, bereft of his children, and at last tormented with grievous botches botches, and sores in his body, he did not sin. Having first been commended by God himself, he was later restored to his former health and had double of what he possessed before. That pretty much sums up the whole book right there, and that's in an extra biblical writing. So let's look at the book of Enoch. Chapter 1. The words of the blessing of Enoch, wherewith he blessed the elect and righteous, now listen to this, Enoch knew this in 3300 B.C., or just after when he was born, who will be living in the day of tribulation. Ooh, Enoch knew about what was coming. By the way, the tribulation is mentioned in the book of Job. Did you know that? So you see, there's a lot of knowledge here that we think that we're just privileged to because we're getting closer to the end. This is already planned out and God let his people know it. So he said, They'll be living in the day of tribulation when all the wicked and godless are to be removed. Yeah, sounds like a day of judgment to me. And he took up his parable and said, Enoch, a righteous man whose eyes were opened by God, saw the vision of the Holy One in the heavens which the angels showed me and from them I heard everything and from them I understood and saw, but not... For this generation but for a remote one which is to come the generation which seems very closely that it is today just before the time of the end concerning the elect I said and took up my parable concerning them the Holy Great One will come forth from his dwelling and the eternal God will tread upon the earth on Mount Sinai and appear from his camp and appear in the strength of his might from the heavens of heavens and all shall be smitten with fear, and the watchers, these angels, shall quake. And great fear and trembling shall seize them unto the ends of the earth. And the high mountains shall be shaken, and the high hills shall be made low, and shall melt like wax before the flame. And the earth shall be wholly rent in sunder, and all that is upon the earth shall perish, and there shall be a judgment upon all men. How did he know this that far back? With the righteous he shall make peace. Doesn't sound like fake stuff to me, does it? Mm-hmm. By the way, you can look at the authenticity of these things and say, where do they come from? But when these scrolls of the book of Enoch were found in the caves, mm-hmm. you know that they dated back to that time. Okay. Now listen to this. So the righteous he will make peace, and he will protect the elect. Don't we see that in the New Testament? Mm-hmm. And mercy shall be upon them, and they shall all belong to God. And they shall be prospered and they shall all be blessed and he will help them all and light shall appear upon them and he will make peace with them. And behold, he cometh with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment. Wasn't that quoted in the New Testament? And to destroy all the ungodly and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness which they have ungodly committed. Can you say ungodly enough? And all of the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That says it right there, doesn't it? So this plan was written a long time ago. So we also discussed earlier that not only was the gospel purported, well, the future history, told directly to Adam and Eve, and then also made clear to Enoch, and then there were the pillars of Enoch, which people believe may have been the pyramids, but we want to talk about that now. But we also know that there was another mode of God transporting or transferring knowledge of his plan. It was written in the stars. What I'm trying to show you is even before Scripture was written, These men, these people, had knowledge of God and it was imparted to them by these writings, by the Holy Spirit, of course, and also by immutable things that God built, which we'll see more about in Job, in the universe as a clockwork to keep showing His plan of salvation. So we have the Holy Days, which map into the uh, constellations as the Gospel written in the stars. By the way, if you're interested in that, go to Volume 1 of my notes uh, on my website and start reading and you'll find out a little bit more about it. Okay. There's even a note here to go back to my notes in volume 1, just in case you missed it. So I'm just going to read this to you now, hearkening back to the gospel written in the stars. I'm just going to read this to you. Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heaven to separate the day from the night. Well, we know that that's the moon and the sun. And then let them, and listen to this, and a lot of people miss this. Let them be signs and tokens of God's provident care. This is the Amplified Bible. Let them also be signs and tokens of God's provident and care and to mark seasons, days, and years. Isn't that interesting? We're not just talking about the sun and the moon here, folks. And let them be as lights in the expanse of the sky to give light upon the earth, and it was so. So it's almost like a secondary thought. Oh yeah, also let them light the earth. Let them warm the earth and heat the earth. You see what I'm saying? His message is that important. Okay? I'm also going to read you this from the book of Psalms. Just don't go there. Stay in Job. Psalm 91, verses 1 through 4, directly relating to what I just told you, what, you just, what we just read in, in Genesis. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Isn't that interesting? There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. That means there is no excuse. Everybody sees And In the book of Romans, aren't we told that? There is no excuse. Everybody, everybody knows because they see the works of God. Their voices go out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Sounds pretty uh, ubiquitous to me, doesn't it? So now let's examine some of these things and how Job used, or most probably used, all of these things and knew them. You know, again, all of the history as God gave to man, and then man wrote about God and, and the history has and what he's going to do and how it rolls out. Also the gospel written in the stars which God had to teach to Adam and Eve and it was passed down through Enoch and so forth. And also possibly being a contemporary of some of the early the early, you know, the early uh, patriarchs. Although we don't know exactly when he lived as as an adult, when they lived as adults, right? So you see how I'm trying to tie this together for you. Job got this information. And it was very early in history. So there's a combination of things even before Scripture that detailed God's plan. And this is the setup for the book because God really lays it on to Job. All right. So now we're going to go to Job chapter 4 and verse 1. Job chapter 4 and verse 1. I'm trying to tone it down, folks, but I'm trying to keep you awake. I'm watching you all. watching you all. So make sure you're awake. That's when I slam, I see. Everybody looked up. Okay. Job chapter 4 and verse 1. Then Eliphaz the termite. I want you to see you looking up. No, that's a, that's a four type of the cross. You know, wood, termite. Never mind. I'm teasing. That's not true. Don't don't, don't believe that one. only you can't That's right. <laughs> the t- 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 to the termite. He had to get terminex. If someone ventured. <laughs> okay, verse 2. <laughs> Back to real scripture. If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? So this is this is one of his friends. I remember this is Eliphaz, right? Who, by the way, is a second cousin, I think, or he is a cousin anyway, to uh, to uh, Job. So now he's asking. He's telling. He's going to talk to Job here. He says, "So, Job, if someone ventures a word to you, will you be impatient?" It's like, Job, do you want to hear anybody's counsel? You're really in so much pain and disgust that you just don't want to hear anything. You know, I can I can relate to that. Mm -hmm. But who can keep from speaking? He's basically saying, Job, this is so horrible. Who can even keep him speaking, whether you want to hear it or not? We just have, have to, you know, make our thoughts clear. By the way, this is kind of what gets these guys in trouble with God. Chapter 4 and verse 3. Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. So Job was a good man. He was also giving out the gospel as he knew it, right? He was also instructing. He was helping people just like we do today. And God armed him and prepared him just like he does for us today. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you, and you are discouraged. It strikes you, and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Uh-oh. Self-righteousness here. He's, he's like purporting, it seems to, me, seems to me, self-righteousness to someone here. Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? So he's charging Job here. This is not a good thing. As I have observed, listen to this, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it well that's true but you see how he's putting the stick of dynamite under job's already broken body it's just like i said last week and I, i i take this to heart because it really applies to me maybe more than anybody else be careful when you counsel somebody and don't seek to counsel seek to be a friend and as i said and i want to make this clear There are various men who have positions in the church of pastors, elders, and so forth, deacons, and whatever else other churches may have, but we have. And it's a hierarchy of government. And there are certain times when they have a a right or the ability or or the, the scriptural backing to counsel. Okay. It's always in context of the relationship from that level, from a pastor or an elder or somebody like that, or from a friendly level, from a personal level. But please, don't seek to be a counselor first be a friend because you know like Job you can find somebody who's in pain and say you know you need to study the Bible more you need to know that and I've done that and you know knowledge can be a harmful thing when you have knowledge and if sometimes you know I I consider it a blessing like you but sometimes when you really know a lot you can always find something that somebody else may not know you know that you've done it I've done it and then you say to them well, you really need to do this. this is no you don't need to say that sometimes all you need to do is wait for them to ask you for advice and sometimes all you knew is just you need is to be there as a friend, or maybe if you see there's doctrinal issues with them, then you can help them, but also be gentle and then eventually point them to the pastor or somebody you know that you can trust, who can maybe give a better answer. But you see, what I'm saying it's all in context of relationship. This is what this, the beginning of this book tells me, and it reminds me, don't be a jerk, Mike. to say, as my wife will tell you, but she still married me anyway. I counseled her a lot. She said, I'm going to marry you, then I'll be counseling you, brother. So it's her turn now. For 24 years, it's been her turn. But you do get what I'm saying. And Job gives his response to Eliphaz's point of view. Then Job's second friend, Bildad, now takes his turn and tries to console Job by making the case, now listen to this, that all of this is not because of his personal sin, but that all of this evil which God allowed and eventually goodness will just emerge out of it all. So that sounds a little better, right? Here's what Bildad says, Job chapter 8, Job chapter 8 and verse 1. So we see that Eliphaz gives reasons that, you know, this is befallen Job, and and we we saw about that, that there must be some hidden sin, self-righteousness, things like that, right? Job chapter 8 and verse 1. Then answered Bildad the Shuhite. Did I say he was really short? Never mind. Okay. (laughs) Let me see if this thing's still recording. It is. Very good. All right. Then answered Bildad the Shuhite, How long will you say these things, Job, and how long shall the words of your mouth be as mighty wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your children have sinned against Him, then He has delivered them into the power of their transgression. If you will seek God diligently and make your supplications to the Almighty, then, if you are pure and upright, surely He will bestir Himself for you and make your righteous dwelling prosperous again. And though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would greatly increase. So he's being a nice guy about it. He's trying to make him see there's a future to all this, Job. Let's skip down to verse 20. Behold, as surely as God will never uphold wrongdoers, he will never cast away a blameless man. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter, Job, and your lips with joyful shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tents of the wicked shall be no more. There's a lot of truth in what he's saying here. But think about it as a man counseling his friend. I'm going to let you think, I'm not going to go into you know, my own thoughts about all this because I think there's more value in personal interpretation of when you read it. Plus, you know, we're not reading the whole dialogue because we'd have to go through the whole book and we just can't. But if you sample these main pieces of dialogue between Job and his friends, you get the idea of what they're saying and what's going on here. We're setting up for Job's response, but we're also setting up for, I think, the real... The feast portion of this book, the real nitty gritty of this book, the real value of this book, is the 60 questions that God asks Job. That's the big deal, right? So there's two main big deals in this book. Suffering, its application in human beings, why we are built for suffering, how we're supposed to respond to suffering, and how God responds to suffering in us. We've already reviewed that, I think, pretty well. So those are the first things to take out of it. When you're suffering or you know about suffering, or you know somebody who's suffering, whether it's a loved one or a friend, and how God gets closer to us, and there's always a reason for suffering, right? But the next thing is to really understand about God himself even more. That's what we're headed to here. And sometimes, like I said, and this amplifies it, suffering is, well, I'd say unfortunately, but it's not unfortunate. It has to work this way in this time frame. When this time frame is gone, there'll be no more pain and suffering and death, right? But right now, sometimes the best way, and for some people, the only way to get to know God very well is through suffering. Just the way it is. Look how Jesus Christ had to suffer. And that was for a real purpose, was to pay our penalty, because he didn't have any right being suffering, right? But we actually need suffering to, to, to salt us, to season us, to make us, we're in training, we're in training. It's like boot camp. Boot camp is painful. Anybody go to boot camp? It's painful. I had a friend of my son's once who went to went to boot camp, a young kid, right? Goes and he, he writes home or whatever he communicated with his mother that they were really they, they make fun of him and they he's a spindly tall kid, just thin and having a hard time. And he made it through. Matter of fact he's re enlisting now too, so he's a man now, I guess. But you know, he's doing well. But he even wrote back or told his mother, he says, look, don't send me any more cookies because they make fun of me. I'm a mama's boy and things like that. (laughs) (laughs) It's all part of the training. Suffering is necessary. It's absolutely necessary. God, I'm not looking for trouble, but I know it's absolutely necessary. All right, oh, we're just about done here. I think we have to stop here. Um, Let me see. Yep, where did we stop here? We stopped... Okay, we have to start at Zophar the next, yeah. So we have to stop right now. Anyway, so I hope you're finding some value. And um, I really implore you to study the book of Job during the week because there are things I'm sure that you've forgotten. Or study my notes for, for in volume two of my notes on my website, Overview of the Bible. Because I know for myself, if I don't keep these things in the forefront of my mind, I don't get the full impact of the follow-on. Okay, and like I've said, and I still fully, fully believe this, you can see. In addition to, to reading the Bible, get some good notes by trusted sources. You, you really do, I believe, need that. I know I need it, and I know the more I find out, the more I ask God. And by the way, one of my major prayers, I'm just going to leave you with this. This is something you might want to do, and I've mentioned in this class many times. You have to, I think, ask God not only for wisdom and discernment in reading Scripture, but ask Him to bring you to the sources who can give you help. It's like a shortcut who already know the things that God wants them to know to be able to teach you. And likewise, you also can be a source or a shortcut of learning certain things from a certain point of view that somebody else or me may may not really know. That's where I get a lot of this. I mean, I have to be sure that this, that the book of Enoch, that other sources I use are correct and also know that some things are not correct and I have to be able to discern. And that's what I ask God mostly for is discernment when I am brought to the sources that give me the information to really build out a building from the infrastructure that's the Bible. The more you do that, the more ready you will be to give an answer at any time. And the more ready you will be able to respond in in the good way, in the best way, under any kind of duress. Or also learn how to use joy and happiness and the blessings that God gives you. Because if we don't really understand, in my opinion, to that level, we're missing out on the main blessing of Scripture. I just want to clarify that. Because I used to be one of those that you know, try to read through the Bible in a year. That's great. But every time you read through the Bible, you'll get more and more. But there are shortcuts to learning more about the depth, the real depth, the underpinnings of a man's heart like Job or David or Saul or, or all of those things that happen to these men and women for our benefit. Right? So anyway, have a wonderful week, everybody. We're going to pick up with Zophar so far, next week.